Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Yeah, okay. True Crime Uncensored, America's premier true crime podcast. 15 years. Happy anniversary. We're beginning our 15th year of exciting programs. Mark C.G. Boyer. Good afternoon. Fact checker, co-host, producer, Magic Matt Allen. I was all excited. I thought we were going to have a Teen Titan on the show today. Maybe Robin the Boy Wonder. Turns out it's a literary titan. Are you there, my special guest? Well, that was some introduction. Thank you for that. Please introduce yourself. My name's Leslie Gillieri, and I am uh, here because of my book, The Decision to Kill, and um, it's a story I wrote for a friend of mine who was the victim of a murder her husband was. You uh, are getting fantastic reviews on this book. Uh, and so congratulations on that, and congratulations on the award. It must have been, I'm making an assumption here, for a friend of yours to come to you and say, please write a book about the murder of my husband by our adopted son. That's a pretty weighty request emotionally. How did you respond to that? Did you have to think about it for a while? Actually, I did not. Um, What happened was, when she approached me about it, uh, she was older in years, and so it was something she had thought about for years because the crime had happened in 1986, and when she approached me, it was 2016. So she would had a lot of time to think about it, and I think she felt that there was uh, a story in what she had gone through over the years. It wasn't just a story about the crime, so it was fresh in her mind, but it was more everything that took place looking back. And and we were good friends. And when she asked me, honestly, I'm probably like most people that end up writing a book as they had always kind of thought about it, entertained the idea of writing a book. Um, I'd never been in a position that that was something I wanted to pursue on my own, but when she asked me about it, I told her I would love to. I would uh, be honored to write her story. So we entered into kind of a collaboration because she was the one that was giving me the information about the book, and so we spent a lot of time together. So I didn't really have to think about it. Well, so you jumped right into it, and uh, did a fantastic job by all reports. Congratulations on that. Into the story, I've listened to some uh, interviews with you, so I'm somewhat familiar. I've not, I'll be perfectly honest, I have not had a chance to read the book, so I apologize for that. Usually I try to read the book before I talk to the author, so I'm not a complete idiot. <laughs> but I, I, I have heard other interviews with you about this case. Uh, we're talking about something with a very degree of, shall we say, emotional dissonance torn in several directions. Here you have a, a picture of a, a mother, adopted mother, but a mother nonetheless, loves her husband, loves her child. The child kills the husband. This is going to be a very rough, tortuous road for this woman. And probably the child as well. The child's a psychopath, a sociopath. Uh, How did you deal with this aspect of it? Uh, 
Um, uh, first of all, I didn't read the book, and I noticed that you'll want to read it just because there'll be more details that you'll be curious about. But uh, definitely very emotional story. Uh, the woman, my friend Cherie, uh, had married um, her love of her life, as they say often, and they were very happy, very disappointed, unable to have children because that was what both Shri and her husband had hoped for. And when they adopted this little boy after eight years of trying to have a child and then a couple of years with infertility um, intervention that never resulted in anything, they couldn't have been happier to have this little boy uh, who they got when he was three weeks old. So the story, yeah, you're right, it's, it's a really emotional story because it does cover the crime and all the things that most true crime people are interested in, the uh, why did it happen, what led up to the crime. So it talks about the childhood of um, the son, Dwayne, and about the crime, but it also follows him after the murder takes place and the mother trying to figure out what she's going to do with her life now that her husband's gone, how she's going to even get through that grief, and then what is she going to do about what's happened here with her son. So there's a lot of emotion and Maybe I wouldn't have felt it so much in the reading of it, but in the writing of it, um, I felt her pain, as they say, and I, um, I was very emotional as I wrote it, knowing her and having her recount um, the frustrations of his childhood and trying to deal with something that was... Um, a problem that she knew was there, but she didn't know what it was or what to do about it, behavioral wise. And um, so all of that was very emotional. I guess it translates to the book because a number of people have said it was a very difficult and emotional read for them. Right. Indeed. Uh, research shows, I can't go through the exact research, but trust <laughs> me on this. Research shows that our listeners love it when true crime writers talk shop. So we'll talk shop here just for a second, for a few minutes. Okay. Uh, the first true crime book, the serious true crime book that I wrote, because I wrote one funny one and then a serious one, I turned to Dr. Robert Hare, uh, an expert mm. on sociopaths and psychopaths, for help with my book because I knew nothing about psychopaths or sociopaths. That's interesting. You said you're one. Because <laughs> I am one. <laughs> Uh, that whole thing with empathy, uh, sympathy, uh, that's, a, that's a, a real problem when you're dealing with people who do not perceive a difference between carving a person and carving a turkey. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, Robert Hare was a, a blessing to me in terms of uh, his, his work and his research. And the question is, can, can this psychopath be fixed? And, mm -hmm. uh, and in my conversations with him, it was, well, if you can reach them prior to to the change in puberty. You know, if you could get them around 12, 13 years old, uh, if they're a sociopath, uh, not quite as far gone as a psychopath, uh, and they can learn that, because they're selfish, essentially, uh, that if they hurt other people, 
it will rebound upon them and make them their lives bad and unhappy. Anybody, I'm not going to cheat people. I'm not going to be mean because that will bounce back and hurt me. And if that works to keep us safe and to keep that person from hurting other people, I guess that's pretty good. As you may have discovered, there is a website for sociopaths run by sociopaths. Mm-hmm. And I followed some of the discussions there one day, and someone said, yep, the reason I'm not, uh, don't pull these stunts on people is I figure it'll hurt me. And so that's my motive for not not hurting other people. is isn't because of any empathy or sympathy, because I don't know what those are. But, you know, I care about me, and I don't want me to be miserable, therefore I'm not going to hurt others. But uh, I haven't seen any real outreach as far as reaching young problematic people, you know, the kids that are showing Without any family community that can recognize, diagnose, and assist a person at that age. I don't. I, I just can't wrap my head around there. Be, there being a lot of people that are capable. I don't think so. What do you think? Well, I think that um, I also read the Robert Hare book. Did not um, have an opportunity to speak with him personally, of course, but um, I found it really interesting because I wanted to understand. What, at least from a layman's point of view, uh, what was going on. I don't remember that part in the book. I should go back and read it because, as you recall, it's a pretty short book. But what I looked at that I found so interesting, and Cherie, the mother, saw behavior in him outside of physical behavior or skill development, just little things she saw early on, and she took him to counseling and didn't find, it's a small community, so just keep that in mind, 1986, not as much awareness about mental health, um, and and she didn't get any help. I mean, people did their best, I guess, um, but um, they didn't have the education, the skill, the training to uh, be able to pinpoint what was going on with him and say, ah, this is what's happening. The other thing I got out of his book was about children and because I was interested about what about the psychopathic child and um, can we help them if we see that early on and I did get the sense from him that because she would have loved somebody to tell her tell me what I need to do Mm. you know I just don't know what I need to do and I know it's not going well for us and and I he indicated that if you can pinpoint it at least to me you can correct me uh, but if you can pinpoint it it helps the parents maybe to redirect um, the child but ultimately I got a pretty bleak uh, prognosis as far as change but I did not uh, read or remember that part that you're saying, and it makes perfect sense to me that if then you can turn the counseling or therapy around to reflect on how it's affecting them, that makes a lot of sense. They, that would get their attention. And then with Dwayne, too, I remember reading in there that he said sometimes 
there's a change, like in their 40s, some of those behavioral um, problems diminish, and so they don't really know why, but I thought that was kind of interesting, too, but I thought it was sad to feel like, okay, maybe uh, in modern day, um, you might find somebody that could identify that he was a sociopath, but even if you do that, what good is it? Other than that's a terrible label, and now what are you going to do? But doesn't cheer uh, anybody it up? Is yeah. Interesting conversation. So I'm, uh, this is Mark over in the corner. Nice to talk to you. Uh, let me tell you a quick story, or a long, a uh, short story, long. <laughs> um, if we're talking maybe fifth grade. Mm-hmm. So it's, the, it's the middle sixties. Um, I'm as bored as can be in school and a troublemaker. I'm, you don't want to be around this pain-in-the-ass child. And so the teacher for the umpteen time sends me off to the principal's office, who wasn't in, and I was left there with the nurse. And visiting the nurse that day was a child clinical psychologist because the nurse was studying to be a therapist. And he was visiting her there. And so he said to the nurse, do you mind if I play with Mark? And so he proceeded to play some games with me. He also (coughs) drew pictures and had me draw stuff. And that was great, and I went back to class, and I forgot about it. It turns out that he heard about me, recognized what was going on. This is pure chance. Identified, A, that I couldn't see. Now, you think about, from a child's perspective, everything is blurry. Mm-hmm. How do you articulate what clear sight is if you don't know what it is? You can't. So I never said anything to anybody. I just looked like I was a clumsy klutz. And I would, you know, I could knock things over. I couldn't grab glasses, you know, a glass of water or whatever. So I got my eyes checked and glasses. And then, unbeknownst to me, I got sent to something called the Sylvan Learning Center. I have no idea if it still exists. It was, uh, it was across the street from the Encino Park where I grew up, so it was really close. And there <clears throat> I learned why it was difficult for me and how to w- deal with my severe dyslexia. And what we're talking about here is how often does that random chance occur in a young child's life where somebody will recognize that they're not right and get them help? And I just don't see that happening enough. It doesn't happen enough. I'm sure I'm I, on top of that, I that. had a family that never once said to me that I was stupid. They never once uh, berated me for my lack of physical coordination or inability to learn. All they did was say, "Um, you're not getting out of this chair until you can draw a five correctly, which took Mm. uh, almost three weeks before I could consistently draw a five that wasn't backwards. Uh, How about if I asked you to do it now? Could you do it now? Could you draw a five? Bs, Ds, fives, 
freeze. I have to stop, think, and then start very carefully the writing. And once I start the correct way, I can finish it. But it is, yeah, it's very difficult. So did the, I have a question for you. I remember the Sylvan Learning Centers, and um, did they help you? Yes, I said they, there's nothing they could do about the handicap. What they did was teach me to recognize when it was occurring, when the handicap was a detriment. To recognize that I was going the wrong way, left or right. Mm -hmm. I still don't know left or right. Mm -hmm. Um, If I'm facing somebody, you know, like you're having a conversation, I cannot tell you which arm is the right arm or the left arm. Just kidding. Um, I got incredibly lucky that I have never made a left turn from the right turn lane or vice versa. But I go the wrong way all the time. I just accept. Just don't do it on the freeway. Uh, that's not the wrong way. The wrong way would be if I want to come here and I instead of going west, I go east. Uh. But I'm going safely. The okay. wrong way. I guess <laughs> uh, yes, uh, yes. They did a great job of of helping me recognize what the handicap was and how to live with it. And what this is nine. This is probably sixty-seven. Mm. Yeah. Now my nephew Todd, uh, who is also a New York Times best-selling author, has severe dyslexia. Yeah. Uh, so that seems to be a little bit difficult. Um, but they gave the colored lenses. The colored lenses work on Do you know uh, who Stephen Crandall is? No. He is a TV producer, writer. Big, big, big producer. Um, and before there were word processors, he did typewriter. He had a custom typewriter made where everything was backwards. Fascinating, Captain. Yeah. Amazing. Well, let's get back to our core story here. Uh, how, oh. did the, how did the kid happen to murder his father? He had to make that, as you say in your title, a decision to kill. Yeah, it, it, uh, the decision was, uh, and the book is about how that came about, like you said, and also how that one decision just affected the fallout of it, you know, forever and so many different people. And as a sociopath, he didn't grasp at all, and that was indicated by a lot of information in the book about how he responded to his arrest, the seriousness of what he had done, even though he claimed to have been thinking about it for a couple of years. Hmm. So um, that's, uh, that's kind of interesting. He, when you go through the statements, depending on when he wrote the statement, he had a story that He had been thinking about it for a couple years. He'd been lifting weights because he wanted to take on his dad. And then in other statements, he claimed to have, it just was in the moment and he was hearing voices and uh, he was kind of compelled to do it, although it was clearly premeditated. Mm -hmm. But with, uh, with Dwayne, he was a typical teenager in that he was 16 at the time of the crime, and he was wanting to do things his own way. 
He had indicated that by getting into trouble with the law, um, stealing from his family, not that that's typical behavior, the, the stealing and getting into trouble with the law, but um, he, he was exhibiting rebelliousness. And then his uh, behavior was also influenced by his drug abuse. He was uh, one of those people that uh, once he found out what it felt like to get high, he just wanted to experience that as often as he could to the degree he could, and it didn't matter what it took. So part of what ended up happening was just a um, increase in his behavior, the parents trying to push back on what he was doing by putting out boundaries and trying to direct him to make better decisions, failing, and then him doing something else. So it just continued to ramp up. So what were some of his issues? Uh, other than being adopted, what problems did he have? Well... Let me talk about his physical problems because shortly after he was adopted, he exhibited some problems, uh, mysterious welts on his skin, these inflamed areas that did not respond to any kind of treatment. Uh, they were itchy and red, um, manifesting when he was cold and wet generally. Uh, when he was an infant, it was when he had a wet diaper. Um, later on, it was when he was in the water, like in creek water. Um, he had that going on. He early on had asthma problems, just difficulty breathing. It, uh, it sent them, the parents, to the ER um, to um, help him breathe again. I mean, he just, uh, he was kind of in a way, I guess you'd say frail. Um, as he get, got older, he did activities, he, uh, but he had trouble. Um, when he was in kindergarten, um, he had problems. Um, the teacher noticed it. They had never noticed it at home, but I guess in the classroom environment, they had noted, the teacher noticed that he seemed to have trouble hearing, maybe like you're, you're not being able to see. Um, the teacher picked up on that. Uh, and the mom went to an audiologist and discovered that, yes, he did have hearing problems, so uh, he had hearing aids, um, which uh, were ugly and he didn't want to wear. Um, and it didn't, it, about that middle school age, you know, he just couldn't participate in sports. I'm sure he felt like he didn't belong, you know, he was kind of sitting on the sidelines while other people did sports, and he just, um, whether it was self-imposed isolation because that was his temperament, or if that along with his physical um, problems, if, you know, if you can't hear, it's like not being able to see, right? You're not, you're not relating well with your environment, so you tend to keep to yourself. So I think those things did not help where when later on he was introduced to marijuana, um, it was like, oh, I found a solution. I'm going to just get high. 
That makes sense to me. Wasn't there an incident with some cats? Yes. When he was probably four, almost five years old, it was early in the morning, and his mother and father were still asleep. And they lived on this beautiful property in Oregon, and it uh, bordered the Applegate River and it had a creek in it as well. And it is just lovely, just beautiful place. Anyway, um, they were, Cherie, the mom was awakened by a sound outside and um, she got up and looked outside and there was her little boy out there on the edge of the lawn, uh, wet from head to toe and crying. And she was horrified because uh, the property wasn't such you'd want your four-year-old to be out wandering around. And it was early. The parents were early risers. So she and her husband went running out there and grabbed him and brought him in the house. And, uh, of course, he was starting to break out in the welts. And um, so when everything was all calmed down, he was warmed up. They're trying to get out of this little boy. What, you know, where were you? What were you doing? How come you're all wet? And um, he was just kind of not responsive, was just kind of quiet, not saying much. And so the dad ended up going outside. And um, for some reason, he thought, well, I'm going to go down to the creek. And Dwayne had mentioned, mumbled something about the cats. And so the dad just thought, we're not getting anything out of him. I'm going to see if I can figure out what could have enticed him out here. And he goes down to the creek and sees the mother and her litter of cats all near the creek. Um, all of them were soaking wet and they were curled up by the blackberry vines that were growing next to the creek. So the dad goes back in the house and says, you know, I found the cats and this is what I saw, you know, so what happened? And he still was not very forthcoming, but he did say that he had thrown the cats, the kittens, one by one into the creek. There was a footbridge that went between the Weir's home and the next door neighbors. And apparently Dwayne had taken the kittens up there and thrown them one by one into the creek. And then the last one was the mother cat and she apparently scratched him. And he lost his balance and fell into the creek. Mm-hmm. And the creek is such that um, it, during certain times of the year, it gets quite a bit of rainfall, and um, he could have drowned there. I mean, being just four, it's pretty miraculous that he didn't drown and uh, managed to make his way over to some berry vines and pull himself out of the out of the creek. So um, when he divulged, which obviously that's what happened, the kittens had ended up in the creek, when he divulged that, um, then the next question, of course, is why? Why would you do that? And then he, he couldn't really answer, and he basically said, well, they wanted some water. They wanted a drink of water, or he wanted to see if they could swim. 
And then he said that the mother cat scratched him. And so that was, that was really disturbing behavior. Um, but, but they were also worried about his physical well-being and his safety. They were, you know, they, they had all these feelings about the situation because, of course, he could have drowned. He could have made it down to the river. He got out of the house, and they had no idea that he could do that. So it wasn't until much later, honestly, that they started thinking about what it was that he was doing and that it was really disconcerting. Well, yeah, that is one of the signs, uh, they say, of the doing strange things to animals. It's, uh, I, I never and quite it, figured out the correlation there, but apparently that's one of the uh, symptoms or behavioral signs of uh, sociopathy. Well, kind of a disregard for uh, life, maybe, just in general, whether it's animals or human life or just others. Yeah. It's a very strange condition. Uh, they're the center of their own universe. But apparently, if they could be educated to know that, <laughs> uh, it makes a big difference. Because the rest of their brain, in terms of logic and understanding, giving them a frame of reference. It's like uh, people have different learning styles. And sometimes schools only teach to one learning style. And people who don't have that learning style are screwed. Uh, my beloved ex, who uh, unfortunately uh, got early onset Alzheimer's, but she worked in a program where they uh, tested the students and then told the students what their learning style was, was it was determined, and adapted the curriculum so that each student could learn by their learning style instead of being, you know, uh, being taught in a way that didn't work. For their, their brain and they had very good results with that and it was very helpful for the students to know what their learning style was it made their life easier it's like you know if you don't tell someone what the, their illness is it's hard to treat it they can participate in their own well-being if they know to a certain degree so do you think the uh, this young man's uh, upbringing being you know uh, more more conservative had anything to do with uh, his eventual spiral? Oh, he would say it, it was almost uh, completely responsible that he didn't take responsibility for what he did. He, if you know, in terms of that he indicated of remorse on his part but um, yeah he would blame his parents by their restrictiveness now if you say that and then you look at the fact that the couple had another child that they raised exactly the same way she didn't turn into a murderer didn't you know pick up a gun and, and kill one of them um, so was it a response to the environment too restrictive? Uh, I knew Cherie well, and from my point of view, I'm reasonably conservative, but she's, they're not, they weren't extreme people. They weren't, um, they had, uh, they had definite views of what's right and wrong. You don't steal from other people. You, you know, the things that you try to teach your kids to think about other people and, okay, that's my ring. I keep my ring in my jewelry box. You can't just 
take it out of my jewelry box and give it to your 12-year-old girlfriend. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're, you're trying to teach them, you know, good social behavior. And maybe a sociopath can't learn that. But she had them in Boy Scouts. They, they would get them involved in, in uh, interactive um Group like that. Uh, he was in it for three years, and with the idea that he'd enjoy doing projects with other kids and outdoors. Uh, really, the thing he liked about being in touch. Um, but it was interesting because, and maybe he had some dyslexic issues, but um, he had a hard time with the projects, even. The simple ones, putting things together. He had a hard time sequencing. Let me think. Um, you you had access to all of the letters he wrote his mother from prison. Yes. So did you notice anything in the writing? Because it was handwritten. And you would notice the dog for God, was for saw, things like that. Well, it's... It's funny you should ask that because as I was talking, I was thinking about the letters because there were 350 of them, and I read them all three times, uh, and then I extracted um, pieces of some of the letters to include in the book uh, that would carry the story along about what was going on with him at the time. So through the years, you could see changes or not, uh, um, backwards and forwards sorts of changes as far as how he was thinking gives you an insight into at least what he said was on his mind. But, but as I was thinking about the letters uh, and just now saying something about that, I never saw anything like that. I didn't see, and yeah, there was, there was never anything like that in the yes. letters, which uh, would yes. have shown up. Some of those letters were 12 pages front and back. Yeah, if he was dyslexic, there's there's almost nothing you can do to keep all errors out of a handwritten note. Yeah. So. The other interesting thing about uh, handwritten notes, or even type notes, for uh, this is being she's a true crime writer and a journalist, like apparently, uh, she probably is already familiar with this or will be about to be, and that is what they call forensic journalism. And that is, you can take a police report, and uh, if you read the police report, you can tell where the lies start and where the lies end. There are, uh, just as you can study anything and you learn, there are tells, like in poker, I guess. Yes. You can tell uh, where, and I have had to do this in my own research, is reading a, uh, maybe an officer's uh, recount of, of the episode, and I can see, bam, this is bad, to other depositions, etc., uh, there's all you, know, you can actually there are classes I think how to do that. They start prevaricating. It's difficult, crack of all the nuances of the lies you construct. As being honest is so much easier. Not necessarily. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, I did not know that. I'm sure I've heard that term. I said forensic journalism. Yeah. Forensic. Yeah, forensic journalism. I, 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 that's very fascinating to me. I'll have to look it up. I did not 
know that. Um, and it, it's funny you should say about just something like, well, as long as you always tell the truth, you don't have to worry about keeping your story straight. Yeah. Well, if we're going to be honest, Burl, yes. Pants, if we're going to be honest. Yes, those pants make your ass look big. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I've been there's asked a that time before. and a place for everything. But one of the biggest mistakes I made was a woman once said to me, after I had propositioned her, she said, will you, will you respect me in the morning? And I said, I don't respect you now. Why, why would I respect <laughs> And damn, that, that blew the whole deal. That she was insulted by that. And, well, okay. Imagine. Imagine. But I thought it was kind of a funny thing to say. <laughs> wrong. So did, um, did you uh, ever determine for your own satisfaction what his motivation was to... Um, I think that he just was, I, I think he was suffering a lot of mental pain, and I think he thought that was a solution, that mm. if he could get rid of the dad, and really, interestingly enough, the mother was the primary caregiver, and the husband worked a lot of hours, so she was really the one that was more um, holding the line with him in, in terms of monitoring what he was doing as, as he got older and his behavior was, um, was starting to be more and more serious. So I think... Okay, um, three times, and of course they brought him home because what else do you do when you have a 16-year-old son? There's really no place that just takes your teenager and and helps them be better people. You know, you just or you try counseling, you try you know whatever you can think of that. And um, I think he just thought if he killed then his life would just be the way he wanted it. Well, apparently he was mistaken. He was. No. It didn't get better from and there. No, and it probably upset his mother tremendously. Oh, she was she was a basket case, really. She, uh, uh, she probably should have been on medication afterwards for a while. The, the grief was so much, she had trouble getting out of bed and her daughter would come home and find her still in her pajamas sitting on the kitchen floor crying. Not always, but there was a long period where she did not manage well at all. Well, I and can then certainly she had understand that. <laughs> I mean, it mm -hmm. is such a horrifying thought that the child would murder the parent. We have the, the fellow from uh, Young and the Restless who was on the show who wrote the book Forgiving Troy. His brother, who had mental issues, killed their mother. <sighs> and how does he forgive his brother for killing their yeah. mother? Yeah. Uh, and it's just, it is so uh, insane. <laughs> That's a legal term, of course. Not a medical one, as I found yeah. out. But um, it is so heartbreaking and so traumatizing that for someone to 
for her journey of recovery, and I don't know what, what condition her condition is in right now, has uh, she somehow come, managed to come to terms with this and, and whatever her relationship is with her son? Uh, I think she did. And what I think is um, this is the way she perceived it. And what I did in this book um, was I tried to leave it up to the reader. Uh, I had a psychiatrist um, read the book and review it for me. And he, he said, um, can a purely evil heart forgive or change? And can a broken heart forgive? And he talks about it's the book chronicles both issues for he called it a thought provoking read. So I don't make any conclusions about any of it, but I think from the mother's point of view, when Dwayne was exhibiting so many problems at home with the drug use and the not coming home and all that, um, they they were troubled by him, angry at him, and all of that. They were never afraid of him. There was never any fear. So even at the time that the body was discovered, and the body was discovered by the 10-year-old sister, so even when the body was discovered, um, no one thought it would be Dwayne. I mean, it never occurred to the the mother or the daughter, oh, it must have been Dwayne. They didn't see violence in him. I mean, yeah, there was the cat incident, okay, but they didn't they didn't fear him. And so that was uh, a really big change. What was your question? I kind of got off track there. <laughs> About how the how does the mother deal with it now? Where is the mother in terms of her relationship with that son? Okay, so so I she hated him afterwards. She's a Christian, but she hated what he did to the family. She couldn't understand it. She was uh, very much um, uh, tortured, really, by why. Why did you do this? Why would you? I mean, yeah, we had issues and we wanted you to come home, but, you know, there's just nothing that, that would indicate that sort of behavior in him. And so, she, but she loved him because he was her son and she loved him, but how to reconcile that. So she knew, she had seen him before he was sent away to prison. And and never really had a good conversation with him. He was pretty, um, he's very egocentric. He was very much, okay, this happened, and yeah, well, it was kind of bad, but we got to move on. I mean, he had just no, uh, he didn't exhibit any remorse at all. And I think for her, her family had tried to encourage her just to, let him go. Let just go, turn yeah. away from him. Just live her life, and you did the best you could as a mom, and um, you don't need to feel like you need to stay connected. But she did. She wanted to stay connected, but it, uh, and that was kind of torturous for her yeah, because that was my what first did that thought. actually yeah. look like? So, uh, without dragging out the story here, I think she 
realized at some point she needed to forgive him for her own ability to find peace. But that didn't happen early on. And I think for her, she felt that if she ever saw a change in him and and an awareness that he had done something wrong, something seriously wrong, that he had impacted all these people, and and uh, but as he came around to a different way of thinking, which may have been because he got closer to 40, did that mean that some of his tendencies, like Hare said, were less? Maybe he, w- he was able more to think of other people? It's hard to say. Uh, but as she was convinced that she saw change in him, she was able to forgive him. I think she found peace ultimately. But that came over years. Right. I mean, just year, I, there, she went 12 years and didn't even see him. Mm. So there, there was just a very slow change. Somebody might read the book, might read the letters he wrote to her and think, oh, he was a mip- manipulator from the beginning till the end. Right. You know, how do, you know, how does any person really know somebody else? It always kind of comes back to that, doesn't it? Yeah, it's difficult to tell, although once you know someone well enough to know that you don't know them well enough, <laughs> that alone could be a real breakthrough. Uh, there was an acquaintance of mine who died recently uh, through misadventure who was a compulsive liar. Uh, and the one moment of honesty from this individual was uh, he was actually giving me a ride home which was rather nice of him at the time and uh, he was going on and on about somebody and I said you should get a job at a movie theater he said why is that I said because you're such an excellent projectionist and it really made him mad and uh, and then all of a sudden it was like uh, it was the weirdest thing it was like ice broke or the fourth wall was broken in a movie and all of a sudden he just says you know I can't stop, I can't stop lying Uh, he says I'm a compulsive liar I I just can't and uh, I said well why are you being honest enough to tell me this and then uh, the mood changed again. He said, well, because I respect you so much. And he was lying. Uh. And, and then he proceeded to tell me a monstrous lie about my own daughter. And I said, see, uh. there you go. That's a monstrous lie. You know it. I know it. But you can't not, not say it. And he just nodded his head. Wow. And I, said, I mean, that's a, and, uh, what he died of. And he was also a thief. He would steal whatever he could get his hands on, which is a tragic story, because he was a rather bright fellow otherwise, and uh, uh, he stole someone's drugs thinking it was something, and it wasn't, it was something else, mm-hmm. and he died from taking something that wasn't what he thought he was had stolen. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, uh, very sad, and the tragic thing was, is that had he received any, probably real counseling, he did have, he did have counseling, but not consistently, and not medication consistently. Uh, he was a very bright fellow uh, with many great talents, but even he knew that what he was doing was not his core self. He said to me mm-hmm. one time, he says, I'm a tourist here. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, you know, he says, this isn't the subculture I belong in. This isn't, you know, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm touring Europe or something. 
I said, well, you better get out of it. <laughs> well, he got out of it. He did right. get out of it. Yeah. That's the tragic thing is, like you said, none of us know what the other people are going through. And uh, we get hints sometimes, but we can't see through their eyes. Well, we can, but that takes about a weekend of training. Uh, <laughs> Jeepers creepers. Yeah. Why don't you get them peepers? Yeah. Uh, two things. Uh, one... Um, I'm sure you got a lot of feedback on the copious amounts of backstory you provide in the book. This is good. I like that. So do people like all the backstory? Like do it all? Or not like it. Or not like it? I would say that there are two camps. People that even though you tell them what it is by the title, um... And by reading the back a little bit, they still don't expect um, a lot of extra stuff, the aftermath. They just want the... Oh, yes, you are so... You're on target on that. Burrow, (laughs) one last thing. There is a charitable aspect to your book. Let our listeners know what that is. Oh, uh, we are giving a portion of the sale of each book is to the Rock Recovery Center, which is a local um, organization that provides help to addicts of all sorts and their families that are looking for help. And the reason we wanted to do that is that is uh, the kind of help that Sheree was looking for, not just substance help, but mental um, mental, mental health. health as well um, because she couldn't find it. And yeah, that's, we just that's felt a problem. better place. Hmm? I said that is a problem. Well, it would be great to have you back on the show again another time uh, because there's so much to cover here. The book is called Decision to Kill. Buy it, read it, discuss it, share it with your friends, have them buy it too. <laughs> 